Hello world! Welcome to my little hovel. This is Having a Cuppa you're listening to. If you're visiting for the very first time, thank you for downloading or even streaming on Apple Podcasts or, if so, on Spotify and also from our new locale based on Audible. By comparison, thank you to Audible and Amazon Music for making it possible to spread word of our journey and in so doing, other potentially weary former thrill-seekers and or adventurous spirits, for that matter, can find their own means of escape, at least sonic-wise. With nothing else uh, announcement-wise, let's get into today's guest, and trust me, it is someone truly exceptional. Erin, Dawn, and I met through mutual friend Sarah Elizabeth. We would mutually reach out, and a couple of days later, here we do a podcast together. Words that may sum up Erin's life and inimitable character. Humble. Bubbly, creative, a survivor, and not handicapped, but rather handy relatable. A new kind of lexicon I created. Without spilling the beans too much, Erin had to struggle with a negative self-image combined with low self-esteem, which in the years to follow became compounded to a dependency on pharmaceutical-grade narcotics. Erin has also had to tackle codependency issues that led to becoming an unwitting adherent of narcissism, and five years later, dealing with bipolar disorder type 2. Although, as you'll hear in the ensuing conversation, Erin could be not even further of moody, manic, or even depressed. Exactly the opposite, I declare. Now, don't get me wrong. What I have just mentioned are the common character traits of the disease. But Erin, in turn, through a rigid structure she adheres to, is as follows. Lovable, appreciated, bubbly, multi-talented, and of sweet nature. Erin is a writer, an accomplished opera singer, a horror cinephile, and a storyteller par excellence. This conversation that you'll hear went in many different directions, from delving into addiction and domestic abuse to our mutual love of films and music. Personally, for me, it's always joyful to bring a variety of subjects within a single prism of conversation. I truly hope that when you hear this, you'll see a different side to the disorder as what has been perceived to be. Thinking of, I guess that's why more people the world over today at Erin Dawn 31780. Again, to repeat, at, subsequently all lowercase, Erin Dawn, followed by numerals 31780. 780. You can reach out to me by following me on Instagram as well at Chris Nell Media Radio Acting Music, Chris Nell Media on Twitter, Chris Nell on Facebook, and my website, chrisnell.coza. Just to shoehorn this in as well, if it seems like too much groundwork, just simply follow me on Instagram. You'll see my bio highlighted in a shade of navy blue, and all my media work and facilities will be all under one umbrella. Seems simple enough. Savvy? Good. We understand each other. Now, with Thermos in hand, feeling my firebird, it's off to Florida to enjoy a cuppa with an angel of this earth, Erin Dawn. This portion of the show is being brought to you by Whatever We Have in Stock Are Us, your one-stop place to shop for whatever we happen to have lying around at the time. And now, for our feature presentation. 
Nothing like the finest selection. Nothing like the open road. Let's see where it leads me. My name is Chris Nell. In a burgeoning career spanning half a decade, I've done a bit of everything. I've walked the boards on the stage. I've essayed emotions and intention down the barrel of a lens, and I've kept the public on its toes through the coil of a mic. Now, I've entered the world of podcasting. During my quest, there's many questions that need an answer. There are many voices yearn to be heard, and many stories aching to be told. I want to hear them all. I'm a vagabond with an insatiable curiosity. Now I'm hitting the road. Welcome to my journey. invited to hear the stories and the views of people spanning the globe. You'll be taken places through the odyssey of your imagination, from the palm trees of California to the Everglades of Florida, the prairie hills of Alberta and the cathedrals of Montreal and beyond. Come along as we discover the hidden truths to matters of the heart, matters that knowledgeable people share. Artists, activists, advocates, and survivors. They share because they care. People like you and me. Join me as we learn what makes them tick. Sit back and strap yourself in. We're having a cuppa.
Dawn. Welcome, my dear. It's a pleasure to finally make acquaintance with you. Yay. Hi. It's very, very nice to do this. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. Well, you know what? It happened on number 99 and the best the best ideas spring from on the moment sort of sort of junctures. So let's talk about your years prior. You've been around the bend with addiction that took actually it spanned more than what, 20 years? Um, I I would say that any kind of like my career of addiction in general probably started when I was like four or five because I can remember, um, you know, hiding food and stealing Barbie clothes and doing things that probably most kids weren't doing. Um, <laughs> and uh, I was, I was a, I was an odd kid. I was raised by a doctor and a nurse, um, and uh, and it was very. It was a different kind of upbringing. I have a, um, I have a, a sister who is 18 months younger than me, but she's special needs. And I have an older brother who is 10 years older than I am. So I was the middle child and I was a typical middle child, which is like, what about me? You know, <laughs> um, As is the norm. Yes. Yes. Typical middle children. Um, so my parents, my parents were thoroughly focused on my sister most of the time because mm. she was kind of in and out of hospitals. And then my brother was kind of always in trouble, um, mainly due to undiagnosed, uh, you know, learning disabilities. So he wasn't very good in school. Was he and ADD? I, I, you know what, to this day, I mean, like I said, that was like the seventies and the eighties when they were not really sure they were just so he did summer school a lot and all that. And and what so condition did your sister suffer from? She has a combination of cerebral palsy and just mental cognitive type things where she... I see. It's kind of like dealing with someone who's a teenager. When I see. They're, yeah. You know, yeah. not. Absolutely. Um, so, so I kind of was left alone a lot. Uh, and I asked my parents several years later, like, like decades later, I said, you know, what happened? You know, Cause you know, that first year of recovery where you're just like all eager to just, you know, um, peel the onion and find out what happened. And, yeah. and I did. And the uh, I was like, there. what'd you do? And they were like, we thought you were okay. We, they, I mean, they basically said we left you alone because we thought you were okay. We thought you could take care of yourself. And you said you but, took pharmaceutical grade speed. I did. Um, I so for years and years, um, I'd watched friends of mine in in high school. Everybody smoked weed. Everybody did acid. Um, and I was like the dork that was the president of film club. So I wasn't doing anything. <laughs> and uh, I uh, I got along really good with the stoners because I was terrible at math. And yes, they were always in detention. Oh, so yeah. I was always in detention because I didn't do my assignments. And, um, <laughs> I didn't because when you're, I didn't get diagnosed as dyslexic till college. But prior to that, I like see. in school, I couldn't figure out why. And none of the teachers could figure out why I kept transposing my numbers. You know, okay. so I, I would fail all of these math things because my brain doesn't think the way normal people's brains think in a variety of ways. But when it came to uh, mathematics, it was just like, forget it. Right. So I, uh, I, 
I met the acquaintance of many a many a drug addict in high school, but I uh, wasn't, you know, I was too scared. I was raised by um, parents. My mom was very much of the like, so like we all grew up in the 80s and we used to have like the best anti-drug commercials ever. Mm. They were just the most ridiculous thing. And my personal favorite is the one where the guy, his son's like sitting there with his head, giant headphones on, super 80s, and he's just like, burr, 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 burr. and his dad comes in with this like cigarette, cigar box full of drugs, just every kind of drug you can imagine, right? And he's like, uh, he's like, who taught you to do this stuff? And he's like, you, I learned my watching you. <laughs> that's, so that's what we grew up with. We kind of grew up with this like fear of like, if you do drugs, like you're going to die. And yeah, yeah. So that was, so I was, like I said, I was a dork in high school. I didn't, I, you know, I wore big, thick Coke bottle glasses. I watched nothing but scary movies. I wanted to make my own scary movies. And I, uh, I didn't see drugs and alcohol as playing a part in that. <laughs> so, so I, uh, my, my drug career, uh, or any, any kind of drinking or addiction didn't start till I was about 18 or 19, okay. you know, and then it was the old, you know, or oh, at a party, everybody else is smoking weed, you know, um, Classic peer pressure. And total peer pressure. Are you kidding me? And then it was funny cause I came home and my mom's like an ex hippie. So she knew something about <laughs> And I was just like, like, I mean, clearly it was bad weed. Because I was just like, oh, my God. I don't, I don't feel well. I, I smoke weed and I don't know what happened. And my mom's just like, just sleep it off. <laughs> You're fine. Just sleep it off. You know, and I was like, okay, you know, determined never to do another drug. Well, fast forward about. Five years into, to be truthfully, about five years into my um, 20s, I was 25 years old, and I was working at a call center, and uh, where, where lots of addictions are born, mm. and I saw this girl, and she looked insanely fit, and I was like, what do you do, you know, and mm. she's like, oh, I go to the doctor, and he gives me pills, and I thought to myself, all I heard was, pills <laughs> so, uh, and, I, and I just said what and uh, she's like yeah she's like I, I take pills and I don't eat and I was like that sounds amazing um and so I I called my father my father was my first uh pharmaceutical uh whatever you want to call it distributor yeah I mean I called him I said do you know about this and he's like oh yeah so it's one of the oldest drugs on the market and he's like you want me to write you a script and I was like I do um, and I very quickly got addicted to it, um, right. because I had smoked weed, I had drank like little here and there, but alcohol didn't really take off for me until like my mid twenties. But around this period of time, um, I took this pill and all of a sudden it was like, Oh my God, you know, I feel like a superhero. Another world. I have all the energy in the world. I can get stuff done. I can concentrate and I don't have to eat. It was like, you know, the I have arrived moment, as they call it, when you find that one drug that you're never gonna stop, you know, thinking about or whatever. And so I started doing it and very quickly it became not about losing weight. It became about that just high 
of feeling of like, you know, like just nothing could touch you, Absolutely. you know, no matter what. And um, which quickly then gave way to like insomnia. Mm. Uh, so I had to take something else to go to sleep. Which would be? And then, uh, well, at that time, there was this, um, there was this pill that they were giving, ironically enough, bipolar people. Um, wasn't diagnosed yet, but um, ironically, they were they were using this as a like, but they used it off brand as a sleep aid. And I decided I was just going to take like four of them. You oh know, so gosh. I started. I was just like, I would take, you know, the speed to get up and go to work. Speed in the middle of the day. And then when I get off work, it was like, you know, I would drink a little bit, but then it was like, it's sleepy time. Yeah. So whether it was uh, that particular, you know, off-brand usage of something or uh, Lortab was another big one, though I wasn't really much for opiates because um, I just didn't that like was my poison. Oh, opiates was your, was your thing? Yeah. 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 Sleeping the, pills and painkillers. Yeah. The, the people who I know who are highly addicted to opiates, it's like, that's like its own, you know, um, my withdrawal from speed was more, uh, like the, the physical stuff was very flu like or whatever, but the, the psychological withdrawal lasted oh, for like my. six months. I can, I um, can imagine. I can like, relate to your story your because when I, when I was still working on commercial FM radio, I was doing nighttime drive, um, I've said this before, whatever you experience within a space of a nine-to-five workday, I experience in three to four hours. Because after you get off the microphone, you are exhausted, you are irate, you don't want to talk to anyone because you've expended so much of mental energy. But that adrenaline from that uh, experience is still coursing through your veins. So get this, I get off the air at one o'clock, then it would take me an hour then it's already two in the morning, then I can't sleep. Then I would take one pill, doesn't have any desired effect. I would take another one, multiply it by another two, multiply it by another two upon that, and ultimately then I would keel over, wake up the next morning, feel horrible. So I do have a sense of, of empathy where that is concerned. And we'll get to your disease that you found out about, we'll get to in a moment. But... <laughs> in two seconds. But I've got sympathy in that regard because if you're working in a fast-paced environment where you're expending a lot of mental energy coinciding with the physical, then, of course, I don't think a lot of business psychologists understand this, but uh, copious amounts of adrenaline is, a, is, is introduced to your system. And for a person like you and I who are right brain dominant, that's a potential threat. Absolutely. I mean, my, I, I, I can still do the customer service voice. You know mm. what I mean? Like, I don't do customer service anymore, but like, <laughs> thank I remember, it's like, thank you for calling such and such. This is Aaron Dawn. How can I help you? Can I have your? <laughs> you know, Why haven't you ever? Can I have won your account number. Why haven't you ever <laughs> won any service award for that voice? So, so, and, and, but I'm glad that you, you know, it's beautiful. I'm glad that you recognize that there is a certain amount of adrenaline and there's a certain amount of energy that is taken to do that job, to, to be a phone person. You I wasn't commercial have to retail. be Absolutely. on all the time and there is no being off. And it's and exhausting. 
very it's exhausting, exhausting and it's it it drains you of everything like there is nothing worse than coming off a call center job and at night and like the phone rings and you're just like fuck you, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it could be like the nicest person in the world and you're like i'm not picking up that i have to tell you this story i just thought about it now i began working in the cellular industry when i was 16 years old and um customer service, but not just the telephone, you know, helping clients over the counter. Like, for example, Mm -hmm. if your phone, your contract with Verizon has just expired, and all of a sudden there goes your cell phone's motherboard, you'd bring it to me, I would have to get the quote, relay it to you, you pay me the money, then I book the phone in. And we would do 20 more walk-ins a day. Now, relating to you as well, where you have to expend some amount of mental energy, you also have to keep train of your thoughts. Uh, I went to go get the quote. My boss is back in the store, storage office, and I go, uh, boss, how much is it for this? Uh, she wanted to have a phone battery re- replaced. How much will this phone battery cost? Uh, it'll cost this amount for the generic one, this amount, but bear in mind, it does come with a warranty, and it blows up like a pregnant fairy. And the idiot that I was, I ran to the front, and I relayed that exact same <laughs> Pitch, chapter and verse, and the best of it all, this woman goes, be careful because I am pregnant. <laughs> oh my god, that's so great! But Hashtag she took pregnant fairy. But she took it like a sport, and we all had a good Thank laugh. God. Thank God. But yeah, I absolutely concur with you. Now, Erin, concurrent with your drug use, you had a bout of domestic abuse. I'm led to understand. Yes. Yes. Um, actually I, well, so the, the domestic abuse, if you're referring to later on, um, I was actually in recovery for that. So, uh, prior, however, I did grow up with an emotionally abusive father. Um, you know, I, I, I grew up with, I grew up with a dad that, um, he was an amazing doctor, like the best. And had an insanely good bedside manner. I am still friends with his patients. He's really dead. so like that's how renowned he was to the point that these people tracked me down after my dad died and were just like, oh my god, you know, we loved your dad and your dad was this and your dad was that. And so growing up, I mean, you know, it was like, oh, you know, it's it's its own status. Can I pivot for a second? Was he a small town doctor? Yeah. Yeah. So we don't, I mean, Tampa, because Florida. You're from the American South. I'm from, I'm from the American South. Yes, I am. Um, So I was, I was raised in Tampa, but when we grew up was this place called Brandon, which is like a suburb of Tampa. And um, it's used to be just cow pastures and a couple of like, stores and when it was that that was when my dad my dad was the first OBGYN to open practice in Britain. Wow. And was he and, a cl- uh, was he a classically trained doctor? Did he go to like an Ivy League uh, um, I mean, to get his I, license? University of Florida. I'm not sure if that's Ivy League. Probably not. I yeah yeah USF you stay forever. Um <laughs> he, uh, he did he he did you know, he, he went to medical school. He was originally studying to be an engineer and in true bipolar fashion, he was like, eh, let's be a doctor instead. Um, so he, he's, you know, he was a member of Mensa. He was a very intelligent wow. person. 
Um, but yeah, he decided in his 30s <laughs> that he was going to become a doctor. So, <laughs> Quite the change. So, yeah, so he opened up a practice, and like I said, he's the only gig in town. So everyone that lived in Brandon, it's like you saw my father, you know, knew who he was at least. Um, so, I mean, he was in the paper all the time because he delivered all these babies. And, uh, but it had a downside. And the downside was that when my father got home, he had absolutely nothing left to give. He was I done. Understand that. And I understand that. Yeah. so I would go and work with him in his office and work. I worked for him for like 10 years in the office. And mm -hmm. I saw two different men. You yeah. know, I, yeah. I saw, I saw two totally different men. I saw men, I saw a man that women would wait to see, like we would tell them he's gone to deliver a baby. Do you want to reschedule? And they'd be like, no, we'll wait. <laughs> and I'd be like, I want to go home at five, but it didn't oh matter. <laughs> wow. So, you know, oh, and he had great. this, he had this insanely larger than life personality. He drove a motorcycle. Um, he could tell you to the day how many babies he delivered. He knew all his patients. Um, mm. You know, he was, he was huge. And, um, but yeah, when he would come home, he would start drinking and then just shut himself off from everybody, like oh, everyone. So during that time, he was just very emotionally abusive. He was also um, a fat shamer. Oh, and man. I, I grew up kind of a, I wasn't really like a chubby kid. So that like, I look back on my pictures cause you always say like, well, clearly, you know, and I look mm -hmm. back on my pictures and I'm like, I look like a normal kid, you know, of course, but very much, um, perhaps it's generational. I'm not sure, but very much an obsession with like thin, beautiful women. Right. 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 And right. But it was so, anonymous yeah. in the eighties. And I think with, with television shows like Miami vice, uh, oh, yeah. which predominantly featured a sexualized version of feminine beauty. That was the standard of the time. Nowadays, yeah. it's a completely turn on its head because now the roles have reversed, in my humble opinion. Whereas, mm -hmm. and forgive me, this was not part of the, the original content, but I come up with this stuff as I go because it's, it's, it's relevant, where normally with a man, with a man hunted the woman in courtship, now it's reversed and referring to body shaming I'm, and i'm going to be very careful saying this men's appetites and women's appetites towards sexuality have changed so that that image has become very to a great degree i'm going to say it with approval largely dissipated because it's yes you can't control your your body weight like for myself i was a porker when i was a kid but because of my height, I shook off a lot of that weight. And when I had cancer, I gained weight again, only to lose it after I went into remission. And mm. people don't look at me for my figure. People think of my character. And that's to a great degree how it should be. Not what you yeah, see on the front I'm pages of a magazine. Yeah, I, I, you know, and I went through this in my, in my twenties and in my thirties. I mean, I was, I was very diet addicted. Uh, I was, I would go so it's far so. as to say I was or, orthorexic, uh, which is a eating disorder characterized by wanting to eat a very specific diet and to eat perfectly. Um, mm. It's, mm. 
it, it, it's almost like, trust me, you can make an orthorexic. You know what I mean? Like all you sure. have to do is throw them on a couple of different diets and trust you learn like, oh, I, I have to weigh and measure this and I have to do this and I can't eat sugar because sugar is bad and I can't eat white flour because white flour is bad and I have to do this and I can't have too many carbs after six because of this and it becomes this, um, it's sick. And then I Very. mean, it wasn't until I hit like 36 that I really dove into like anti-diet revolution stuff and, and started like thinking about, well, am I eating food because I like it or am I eating food because I'm conditioned? Um, you know, cause I'm like, oh yeah, grilled chicken and vegetables. I fucking hate grilled chicken and vegetables. I hate chicken <laughs> in general, but like <laughs> I had been, been conditioned, you know, I was like, well, I guess this is what we have to do. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so yeah, totally, totally off topic. But I grew, I grew up with that. I grew sure. up with, you know, a father that was very, would make those kind of comments. And so I grew up thinking that I was unattractive uh, and, and not, and not to be loved, you know, because, because women who are not thin and beautiful are not loved. That was the, the, um, the message that I got growing up, unfortunately. The subliminal message. Yeah, the subliminal messages you get um, as a kid, and you don't even like realize the types of things you get <sighs> wired with, you know, uh, before you're like, oh, wow, okay, that's where that came from, you know, and I mean, when you're like a 10 year old girl, and you're like, I'm gonna be in Playboy someday. It's like, yeah, dream big, you know, <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> absolutely, like... absolutely. It's a pipe dream. And I think to a great extent it is still today. Uh, let's get back to the topic of domestic abuse. Um, yes. You said it happened after you got sober. Tell us it more. It did. Um, I had about three and a half years sober. I had gotten out of a relationship with someone and didn't really. I had a lot of times when, you know, bullets have left guns slower than those relationships ended and began. Um, and that this was, this was no, this was not different. Uh, so maybe a couple of weeks after I'd broken up with this person, um, a friend of mine from recovery was like, Oh, you know, there's this customer who comes into Sonny's all the time. And I showed him your picture and he thinks you're very cute. And, and I was like, all right, set him up. <laughs> and, um, and we started and we started dating and he you know was very charming and very different than I was used to um and uh just kind of like a sort of manly redneck guy with tattoos and piercings and uh and I, I and I'll I'll say it man I was working out my daddy issues for 20 years Sure. So if you were an older gentleman and you were masculine and you were, you know, somehow presenting yourself to be the person that was going to take care of me, um, I was attracted to you. And mm -hmm. this was no different. And uh, I, at the time, was very heavily involved in my recovery. So in Tampa, which is where I lived, that was where I got, that was where I'd gotten sober. And so all my meetings were there. My sponsees were there. My sponsor was there and I was really involved in it. And then all of a sudden I started dating this new guy and, you know, I mean, all people go through their whole relationship Island thing, you know, like when you first meet somebody, it's, just, you know what I mean? It's just like, I just want to stay in bed and have 
sex and eat with this person and was that really what the same person was that really what was going through your mind yeah it's bullshit it's bullshit <laughs> your friends disappear you know everybody disappears you don't care you're not answering your phone you're just like no he's so great so then that was and it was no different and he um he slowly groomed me for abuse um you know it started off very oh my god you're you're so adoring you're so sweet you know like you're such a you're such a gentle soul Aaron you know i'm just i'm so lucky i'm so lucky to have found someone who's so gentle and sweet right and then that slowly turned into you know i want to introduce you to my children and i was like cool okay that's happening and then it was you know i want you to come live with me <clears throat> and we lived like an hour and a half away from each other so i moved from tampa to this place called hudson which i'm just going to say it there should be a sign out front that says hudson it was this or prison because <laughs> it is not good and it's in the middle of nowhere and at this point he had kind of started to plant these seeds and these seeds were you don't need to go to meetings anymore you don't need to rely on a sponsor because <clears throat> you can do these things on your own and like you don't need these friends you don't need to talk to these people classic um, narcissism absolutely absolutely and you know, I was just like, oh, it must be love. So uh, we, so then that, that gave way to um, this like weird kind of unhealthy living where, Very. I mean, I'm a, I'm a combination of some days I'm a salad, some days I'm a cupcake. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm very open to nutritional diversity, if you will. But at the time, you know, um, all we were eating was just like giant big gulps of soda and fast food and lots of like bin, like benders, like food benders, where it was just like this tons of food, right? And what I realized he was doing is that those types of foods have chemicals. They do. And what they do is they make you feel tired. They make they you do. feel sick. And if you're tired and sick, you're going to rely on someone a lot more than if you're feeling really good and healthy. That's because the trans fats emote yes. or engage rather the yeah. downers in your body. So it depresses the, the cortisone levels in your system <clears throat> and the excess buildup of storage actually kills off all your, your um, uh, senses that promote happiness. Yeah. And in addition to that, he also kept me up all night. So it was like we were going to stay up all night watching movies or we were going to stay up all night fighting or talking or whatever, which kept me uh, continuously tired, continuously oh, worn out. And then from there, so we're about six months in, it started into just deep emotional abuse. Oh, um, man. you know, like just weird, weird stuff. And, uh, <clears throat> and so at this point I'm completely isolated. I'm out in Hudson. There's nobody, 
I don't know anyone. I've given up my sponsees. I've given up my sponsor. I've given up going to meetings. And I'm wondering why I'm so miserable. <laughs> uh, and then I think at one point he convinced me to go off my antidepressants. So I oh, went off my antidepressants. No. So I was just, I was so miserable that I would fantasize about dying. Like mm -hmm. I would fantasize, we always drove around in his pickup truck and um, <laughs> how apropos. And um, I would, we would drive around and I would look, I would look outside going, if I open the door right now, would the impact kill me or would I jump and then that would kill me? Or would he find me if I jumped? Would it, you know, I, that was where my brain went consistently. And, um, you know what? I wish my mother was, was here to hear your story because that's what she went through. And it's only now in recent years that narcissism has, be has started to become a spoken about subject. In fact, there's a TV series called Dirty John. That yes, Dirty John! Have you seen yes. season two? Uh, no. About the, uh, are you familiar if I mention the name Betty Broderick? Betty Broderick, yeah. It's yeah. about mm -hmm. it's about the Betty Broderick case, and if you okay. take and if you take both stories, those women were driven half mad by what they went through. Yes, they were both isolated from what they loved, what they knew, all for mm -hmm. the sake of the man of their dreams. Now, mm -mm. I want to present a, a caveat here. Just because narcissism has come to light in the recent decade, it doesn't mean men are the only uh, culprits, <clears throat> excuse me, to narcissism. The pendulum swings both ways. Both but, ways. But as of late, why is it only now that it started to become a discussed topic? It boggles my mind that it took a case of such magnitude and a journalist from Los Angeles called Chris Gofford to turn it into a, into a podcast, and now it's it's basically... Pop culture, dare I say. Yeah, it's common. Now it's, you know, it's like, oh, you're a narcissist. You're gaslighting me, you know? <laughs> and Gaslight from 43 was the very first media portrayal of uh, of classic mm -hmm. narcissism. There's another one. If you haven't seen it already, it's a scary movie uh, created by Lee Wannell, who directed Saw, called The Invisible Man. Oh, okay. Well, I got to put that on the list then. Absolutely. And it all deals with regards to this woman being tormented by an unseen enemy, but the but the the signs are reminiscent of how her ex treated her. And there's another title that I want to shoehorn in here. And we'll get to this topic a little later as well. It was a film done by Julia Roberts and an unknown actor by the name of Patrick Bergen called oh, Sleeping, Sleeping with, with the, the Enemy. <laughs> oh yes. Yes, yes, and yes. And every time something of that magnitude pre-2010 came out, no one paid any source of attention. Mm. The critics, the crits didn't even have a good word to say. They thought it was, oh, it was just something that fell out of the sky, this woman being tormented. Ugh, God. The towel. But, yeah. Mm. The, the so, obliviousness is Yeah, is, yeah. Is so it, it, was, sad. it was just crazy. It was like living, it was like living in hell. Like that's how I would describe it because it was dark and gross and there were roaches everywhere. And oh, I was just, 
miserable and I was sick all the time. And, and then eventually uh, we'd gotten into several, we would get into several fights where he would just scream at me and I cried and then either throw me out. He once threw me out because we were watching Psycho and I pulled up my, no, it was my computer because we didn't have like, no phones didn't have internet, but we had, I had my computer and I was like, I wonder what, you know, interesting trivia I can find on Psycho. Cause I'm like a weird person like that. As and he was like, and he started just packing my stuff into a black bag. And we was for just what? Like, get out. And would just do, and would just do, he would fly off the handle for a variety of reasons. It could be anything, it could be anything from like, I, I looked up information about Psycho to I narrowed my eyes. I remember that very specifically that like I had narrowed my eyes at him and he was just like, done you know so and each time this happened he would you know i love you baby i'm sorry i'm just you know i'm so this or i'm so that or i'm under so much stress or i'm just upset about my kids or you know he had all of these things to the point that his own little boy who was maybe five at the time told him specifically you need to be nice to her you need to be nicer to her we like her um, so, you know, it was this consistent breakup, get back together thing. And, um, and how long did that cycle last? Nine months. Wow. And towards the end of those nine months, uh, I started going back to, to meetings. Um, I found a meeting in the Hudson, actually outside of Hudson, and I started going to it and I met some women and those women had started their own private meeting um, on this other woman's front porch. It was funny because I told that story on a different podcast. They, the, the woman who was part of that, she heard that and like got in touch with me the other day. And she's like, Oh my God, I'm so glad you're okay. I'm so glad you're doing well. You know, this is Sarah's podcast, right? Yeah. And I was like, you guys saved my life. You know, like, I, I don't remember half y'all's names. Um, but I mean, you guys, I remember it very clearly, man. We just sit on the porch and I would, slowly let in little things like, oh, well, you know, he yells at me or he wants me to do this or he doesn't want me to have a job because if I have a job, then I'm not at home and Mm. just, you know, all these things. And so they would gently, you know, tell me like, hey, like you probably should get out of there, you know, Um, Mm. and I would do all kinds of stuff. Like I remember at one point I stood over him with a bat while he was sleeping. And I was like, and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't do anything. I was just like, nope, can't do that. Um, so one day we were sitting in the living room, we were fighting about something and he took a, a big gulp full of ice and water and threw it in my face. And I, I got angry, so I fought back. And I, uh, I whipped around and just went like this to the back of his head. And he chased me through the house and pinned me to the wall and was basically gonna kill me. And, uh, and I just kind of like shrank a little bit so that I could, so I was essentially letting him know like, you know, I'm not a threat. You know? um, and he let me go. And then that night I was going to get ready to go to a meeting and uh, he was mad because he wanted to take a nap and the cable guy was coming. 
I, I I have very few memories of that night, but I remember that it was something that there was some sort of a delivery man or some sort of a repairman was coming and that he wanted to take a nap. So I had to be there to let the delivery man in. So I was like, fuck your delivery man. Um, I, I, I'm taking a shower and going to this meeting. And so while I was in the shower, he was like screaming and yelling at me. And I, I got, I backed into the shower and gotten down really low. And I was at, at the time, I didn't really know what I was doing. I think I was praying. Like if I had to like really think about it, I think I was praying and I just was like, okay, razor blade, which I wasn't going to use on him. That's the thing about that was razor blade was death. Like that was like, I'm going to, I'm done. But then I saw the door and I was like, if I can just get him to move so that I have a, you know, I have like a, a line and uh, sure enough, he, he was, I don't know, maybe he went to pee. I don't know, but he like, he like moved this way and I just saw the door and was, and I jumped up and put a dress on, didn't have any like shoes <clears throat> or anything and just ran and just went tearing ass out and uh, got down to the end of the end of the block, which is where my car was and uh, got in the car and went to a payphone and then was just crying and I called my mom and I said I need to come live with you and she was like okay so um then I moved to St. Pete and that was a totally different experience because I knew no I knew no one and I had to start going back to meetings or I wanted to start going back to meetings I wanted to get involved again and you know but I was pretty broken like I was really he had broken me to a point of health you know um spirit uh you know emotions everything was just broken of course so i was you know not i wasn't wasn't ready to work or do anything really because i didn't really know how to do anything without that particular person of course and that's what they um, do they make you completely yeah. dependent on them ultimately mm -hmm. their identity is your identity there is no Aaron dawn anymore it's only culprit x mm -mm. nope and his last and words takes, to me were, you're, you're a junkie whore who's going to die alone. And it takes a long time to get over that. And you know what? My mother's been divorced from my father now for six years. And she's only now starting to heal in the sense of, like what you did, start speaking to other women who have been in similar circumstances, started educating herself on narcissism. And the first thing that was said unto her is, you have to start becoming yourself again. But now here's the, here's the tricky thing. How do you do that? Because mm. you're so afraid to even go to the toilet, dare mm -hmm. I say. Oh, like, yeah. My phone was tied to his phone. Anymore. I didn't have anything. I had nothing. And, and so all my stuff was at his house. And, and my phone was a phone that he paid. So I called one of my only male friends at the time. And I was like, he's going to work tomorrow. Okay. Meet me at this house. We'll get my stuff and we'll go and get a new phone. And he was like, okay. So like I had a, a guy friend of mine uh, come with like a truck and, and basically just like we got all my stuff and <clears throat> left and went down to the uh, the crappy phone mart, you know, where they have like all the, the track phones and stuff. And right, I got nice. like my first track phone, you know, <laughs> it's mine. Nobody knows my number. Yeah. <laughs> it was, um, it was a it was a process. It was a process, and it is. 
you know. And it's tiring. Even the the healing process is tiring. And you know what? My humble opinion, I said this, you in the meeting with me at Happy and Joyous and Three, I said everything which concerns healing, especially recovery and especially domestic abuse, healing happens at one's own pace. It doesn't happen like in a fly-by-night sort of motion. No, it'd be so great if it was like, like you see it in the movies, you know, when someone goes through a breakup and then all of a sudden it's, it's like, you know, I'm going to cut my hair and I'm going to go start going to the gym and I'm going to start reading Vonnegut and everything's going to be <laughs> wonderful. And, you know, but it doesn't it's work like, that no, way. total, total bullshit, man. There's no soundtrack Very. to life, you know? No, there's not. No, there's not. No. But it didn't stop for you there because five years after you got sober, you got a medical diagnosis that threw you completely off your equilibrium. Yes. <clears throat> so I'd moved back home and I was starting to go to meetings a little bit here and there and, and didn't really. Um, but I was starting to have these uh, these mood swings that were just out of control. Uh, where I would burst into tears for no reason and I would be angry for no reason and I was anxious all the time and one day my mom came home and she found me and I was just curled into a ball and uh, and couldn't stop crying just couldn't stop and and I knew something had broken whatever it was and she said you know do you need to go to the hospital and I said yeah and then they, when they put me in the hospital, they said, you know, what are the chances you're going to commit suicide? And I said, 100%, because I, I wanted to die. I mean, you imagine being like five years sober, you know, and, and then just, but also feeling so depressed that you don't even care about life at that point. So they, um, they did an evaluation and they told me, they're like, you know, you should probably stay a while. <laughs> and um, while they were doing their evaluation and their interviews, they said, you know, you're you're bipolar or manic depressive, as they like to call it. And um, I said, no, I know bipolar people. You know, like that was my response was like, I know bipolar people and they're zombies because they're on lithium. And I <laughs> just I couldn't could not would, would not. Uh, accept it at all and um and then they gave me like the list of you know hey here are some ways to tell if you indeed are bipolar and I looked at the list and all of a sudden I was just like yeah you know it was just a hard reality now sadly even though bipolar depression tell me something you said you have bipolar depression type 2, right? Have I got the designation correct? Yes, that is correct. So bipolar 1 is characterized by more manic episodes where the mania is such that you are hospitalized for mania. So, okay. And bipolar 2 is characterized by more depressive episodes where you're hospitalized okay. for depression. The way I like to look at it is bipolar 1, I am Jesus Christ. Bipolar 2, let's organize a group for Jesus Christ, you know, Very that's, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it, your mania is muted compared to bipolar one, bipolar one. Okay. Like when you watch like beautiful mind or any of that, I mean, you know, it's that mm-hmm. you're here, you know, consistently and reality is not, you know, <clears throat> it's still to, um, it's very it it uh, yeah the 
the types of people who have to deal with bipolar one, um, you know, they they get really, really, really high. Like they're oh, way sure. up there, and you know, that's why people end up like jumping off buildings and things like that yeah. because yeah. And And the sad part is a condition like that is lifelong. And under normal circumstances, you quite aptly mentioned someone would be prescribed a host of chemical substances, lithium, valproic acid, which is commonly referred to today as Depakote, or even such antipsychotics as clozapine. But, and I'm not saying this to massage your ego, you sit here before me as lively as can be, and on meds. <laughs> <laughs> but that is an indicator, area that it's not a death sentence. And it shouldn't oh, be. Oh, God, no. No, no. And I try to, if, you know, if, if you take one thing away from today's interview, it's it's that this is a man. This is something that can be managed and mm-hmm. that it, it is not a death sentence. And that getting on meds does not mean that you will kill your creativity. That was another thing that I was terrified of. I was terrified of the old, you know, well, I don't want to lose my edge. <laughs> Little white girl from Tampa. But no, I didn't want to, you know, I don't want to lose my, I don't want to, you know, uh, I'm so this and dark and I don't want to not be artistic anymore. And it's like, really? Um, it's, I, I remember specifically going to my ther- the, the therapist at the time and I was like, don't put me on lithium because I'm not going to do it. You know, and he goes, well, I wouldn't put you on lithium anyway. And I said, <laughs> and he said, because you live in the state of Florida and lithium is a salt and you will sweat it out faster than it will be absorbed. And I was wow. like, oh, okay. And he goes, so there's a host of other things that you can try and be on. And, you know, and I was like, okay, but it's, um, it's trial and error. I mean, the... Trust me, I've played armchair doctor for a long time, um, you know, where, where it was like, well, what kind of anti? I mean, they asked me this in the hospital. What kind of antidepressant would you like to be on? You know, and I was like, well, Wellbutrin. Because I knew that Wellbutrin was, I'm horny and I'm going to lose weight. <laughs> I was like, I was like, this is the best. <laughs> and they put me on it. And of course, it drove my mania up. Because oh my gosh! This stimulating medicine, you know, and uh, so I, um, you know, I'm I'm like losing weight and I'm all woo, but I was waking up every morning, um, with this feeling of just death, you know, just this right. feeling of just like my heart is going to explode out of my chest, and um, and I went to the doctor, and the doctor was like, look, like this particular drug is very good for depression. It's not very good for mania. Um, Mm. you know, can we try you on something else? And at that point I had reached that, you know, desperation point where I was like, sure, whatever. I don't care. I don't care if I get fat, just fucking give me something. (laughs) And Mm. they Mm. tried me on a combination of things and they finally found something that worked. And I've been on it for Jesus, um, five or six years, something like that. But other than the medication, how exactly do you go about keeping your moods in check? Oh, my goodness. How much time do you have? All Um, the time in the world. So uh, there's a holistic element to to bipolar management, and that is nutrition, exercise, um, vitamins, 
sunlight. Uh, sleep management, sleep hygiene is like number one. Like you sleep can't, like, hygiene. Yes, absolutely. Because if you can have all the meds in the world and all the therapy in the world, but if your sleep is fucked up, you will have a manic episode because that's what sleep Sleep is so, 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 so important for right, people that are right, bipolar. right, 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 right. Um, so you have to know, okay, like if you're if there's a food that messes with your sleep, you don't eat it. So because like it will a cause lot of a chemical people, imbalance. Right. So a lot of people, like for instance, um, sugar is a big one. You know, I'm not a big sugar person. Like I don't I don't drink soda, and sugar is just kind of like it's. Um, but if I eat, decide to eat sugar at like, you know, six o'clock at night for whatever reason, you know, I will like clockwork, wake up in the middle of the night and then just be like, hyperactive. Now, what do I do? Right. So, you know, um, caffeine is another really huge one. Um, like I don't drink caffeine after 12. So the only caffeine I have is at 730 in the morning. That's it. I don't have caffeine after that um, because if it interrupts my sleep, I can't do it. Um, the other thing is I sleep with a weighted blanket, uh, which was another trial and error thing, you know, because I'd heard people talk about it and was like, oh, get a weighted blanket. You know, I have a sleep mask that has a Bluetooth in it and plays, you know, calming meditation. And I do that do too. Do I use it? Well, I, I have to I have to commend you on that because what helps me sleep is sonic vibration, that sound of the of the forest or the sound of the waves. It helps stimulate the neurons in the brain, and it drifts you off into the alpha and the beta stages of sleep. But I'm sure it must be a strict reg regimen that must have been tough to get used to in the beginning. Absolutely. Um... I, if, if I had my druthers, I would be drinking energy drinks at four o'clock in the afternoon. I'd be staying up all night and watching movies and fall asleep to the television and, you know, figure out a way to make it work the next morning, um, <clears throat> eat whatever I want, you know, but the types of, to talk about the downside of bipolar for a second. Um, of course. Because... Yeah, mania is all well and good, but um, the higher you go in mania, the lower you will go in depression. And so if you have a manic episode and it gets to its point, it'll hit the point and then it'll start to go like this. And the down, the, the down slope of, of an episode is debilitating. Um, there's a lot of the way the way I would describe it is that mania is like you're the life of the party and everyone loves you and you're the most brilliant person in the room and you have all these ideas and there's wonderful and absolutely no follow through, but you have all these ideas. And then all of a sudden, the list of things that you've made that you are so excited about turns into the scariest thing you've ever seen. All of a sudden you're like, I can't do any of that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I don't, why are people talking to me? Everything's too loud. You're too loud. Everyone's just, there's too much going on. I can't do this. And you start to shrink and then you start to get anxious and then agitated and then 
Full there's on this dark like mode. dark, depressing, crying. Uh, a couple days later, very little memory of the things you did while you were manic. Case in point, I get home today. Apparently, I bought a pair of shorts. Don't remember doing it. And a shirt. Oh Don't remember doing it. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's right. I was, I was a little, little, little tweaked. Decided I was going to buy something from Old Navy. Just out here. Yeah. So you, the only difference between, between say now and back when I was first diagnosed is that um, I no longer use it as an excuse for bad behavior. So I don't, I, there's no part of me that's like, well, I'm manic, you should know better. Or I'm bipolar, you should, you know, you should avoid me because I'm, the, no, 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 no. I have personal responsibility today. I have accountability today. I, that doesn't, you don't get to hide behind, <clears throat> you know, you don't get to hide behind like a mental illness, you know? Right. Do Do I sometimes end up where like there'll be a big debilitating or stable my therapist a destabilizing event that will happen that will throw me into like a mini episode that does happen and sometimes there are casualties usually credit cards um right right things of that nature or i may fly off the handle mouth wise you know but just like everything you learn with the steps and making amends and everything. It's like you, you have to clean up the stuff that you destroyed. And you've done it and you've done it. I can see it as you're speaking to me and it's written in your eyes. You're a walking, talking example of repentance. Really you are. Um, Earlier today, you were very kind to offer your five cents to an opinion that I recently put up on social media um, there are currently three films that they're ready, two of which have been released. The one is uh, Snow Babies that was released last year, dealing with heroin addiction. The other one is Crisis with Gary Oldman. If you haven't seen it, really do yourself a favor. It's not, your, it's not a preachy film. It's a fictitious film set around a conspiracy theory, or not a conspiracy theory, about a product that's now being released on the market that has a devastating side effect, and all the parties involved, there's one half that's trying to get it out into the public to warn people stay away the other people just want to make money big pharma so that it's set around that pyramid of argument but with the internet these days leonard malton the infamous critic used the expression the age of the amateur and it's true we are in the age of the amateur where anybody can create content podcasting you do filmmaking or you dabbled in filmmaking rather um <clears throat> Everyone can be a musician because they can build a studio from their home. So it's, it's, there's really no cast and concrete rules. But what makes me nauseous is these people who want to be critics that feel the need to bash. We mentioned those couple of films earlier, Sleeping with the Enemy, Dirty John. Uh, what was the other one? Can't think, but it'll, it'll come to me. When people see content like that, they'll, they'll bash it because they think it's a one-dimensional side of the, of the pyramid it's not. It is reality. But it's not uncommon because, let me give you another example. The late Roger Ebert, rest his soul, he was unkind towards that film, The Bucket List, which dealt with cancer. And the reason why I think that is, is because to my mind, the film must have ser- served as a sort of a visual premonition to his eventual swan song that happened more or less than five years later. But conversely, 
when I was sick with cancer and I saw the bucket list, it gave me hope. So um, long story short, why is it that you think people are insensitive when it comes to making content visually like a film, but they're so insensitive towards the, the topic matter? Because I'm of the opinion, if I don't like something, just don't watch it. You're not being forced to hold a gun to your head, but you're also not doing the world a favor by bashing it because one man's trash is another man's treasure. You get what I'm saying? Which is why I don't like critics in general. Like, I, and that's just like, you know, a hot take, you know, like I don't, I don't like movie critics because for me, like, I, I believe beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And Absolutely. there are lots of, there are lots of things that I can watch and get something out of. I, there's of lots of music I can listen to and get something out of. And I don't need someone telling me that, you know, not to see it or or that it's this or, or or whatever it's like dude one of my favorite movies is jaws 3 okay jaws 3 is a piece of shit it's a <laughs> terribly made film it's so bad but it brings me joy because i grew up with it because it takes place at sea world which is like 90 minutes from my house you know because it's got dennis quaid super high on coke the whole time like <laughs> a jillion reasons to love this movie but the critics hate it, absolutely hate it. And they say that people that like it are mindless. And, you know, it comes down to like, sometimes I can watch, I can watch anything and get something out of it, you of know? Course. And I think that people who go immediately on the attack and say like, well, you know, this is a terrible movie or this is this. It's like, most of those people haven't even seen that movie. Probably most of those people have probably watched the trailer. Um, and then gotten so far as to be like, oh, it's another drug movie. It's another, you know, whatever. And I think that, I, I think people have, pre I think there's, there's still prejudice. There's still prejudice when it comes to drug addiction. There's still prejudice Huge when it comes time. to recovery. Huge. Um, <clears throat> Big time. And sometimes there's prejudice within our own community. Um, you know, I know tons of people who are in recovery who are total dicks about recovery movies. Mm. I mean, you know, like you, and, and, and here's the thing, man. I'm too old to be a dick about a recovery movie. Like, I'm just like, hey, man, whatever. If they wanted to make it and that made them feel good and they think that they're going to reach one person, who gives a fuck? Let them do it. Let them make the art. You know, like, it, it's not our job to sit there and say, like, well, they're violating this tradition and this isn't the way that NA meetings go or AA meetings go or this isn't what blah, blah. So, <laughs> like, if that if that movie gets one person to look up a meeting or go to a meeting or go to Zoom or anything like that, then that movie has done what it's need what it sets out to do. Exactly, so, and that's what I think these filmmakers set out to do is to try and reach a mass audience with a message of hope, which the normal person inverted commas cannot necessarily see conversely Aaron and you and I were talking about this earlier as well there are certain things that should not be said at all give you a good example you mentioned that there should be more content made about bipolar disorder and I cannot agree with you more making fun of it is a complete no-no in my book and an example of that is observe and report with Seth Rogen where they actually poked fun at that and I saw and I saw five minutes of that film and I switched it off. But what I am going to say is the only person in my books, 
And if you know more, help me write. The one person who managed to get it right was Claire Danes in Homeland. Oh, absolutely. She oh, we, played, my, my boyfriend she and I both cunningly. said this. We're like, Claire Danes. She played, it, <laughs> she played it cunningly. But one thing that upset me was the fact that she, the character became so extensively promiscuous. But then you have to interpret the interpreter because it was atypical of a series which is aimed at adults. Do you think that there should be more empathetic portrayals to end the stigma of bipolar in the mass media? I wish that, and my goal with working on the screenplay that I'm working on currently without giving away too much so people don't go and steal it, um, is to show that there's hope with it and that there is management and that it is it, it is something that can be managed and that it's not a death sentence, I think. Um, a lot of movies I've seen with bipolar disorder um, have kind of shown sort of kind of a one-sided view of it, you know, very much of like, oh, these two, like there was a, a movie, I, can't, you know, I cannot remember the name of it right now, but it has Katie Holmes and Luke Kirby and they play these two bipolar people who meet at a mental institution. Of course they do. And they get together and they decide to stop taking their meds. And, you know, they're both manic and they, you know, they're like creating art and, you know, and then of course they crash because that's what happens. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it, it's just, uh, it's cringe. It's, it's just cringe when I watched it. I'm just like, Oh God, really? Um, but for a lot of people, you know, if it's, it's all about your reality. Mm. And so my, my reality when I first got diagnosed was someone that traditionally loved being manic and didn't want that to go away and was willing to take, you know, copious amounts of caffeine to sort of keep keep the party going as it were Bantus. and then you reach a certain point in experience where you're like you know what it's not worth it i don't want to go there i i know that if i go here then i gotta go there of course um but if i stay here and i'd like to see a movie where people are trying to stay here you know I what i'm see, saying yeah. like i've seen I've, I've seen a lot of movies up here <laughs> And I've seen a lot of movies down there. <laughs> Naturally. I found the name of that film that you struggled to get with. I believe it's called Touched with Fire. Yeah, that's it. That's the one. Yeah, we watched that a couple weekends ago because we were I was sitting there writing my script and I was like, I want to see what not to do. And I started watching it and hey man, dude who wrote it, directed it, bipolar, right on. You know, the fact that he got a movie made fantastic that's great um but i want to see a more manageable version of that right. you know and i that's just me because i know a lot of people i have a lot of friends who are bipolar and i and my my partner is bipolar and is you he? know yeah oh absolutely that's how we met like <laughs> so um i that's so important to to have that recognition that that's, right. that it's not like you know you're going to be on the floor forever mm. and you're not going to be like on top of a building 
you know, creating Picasso. Like, I hear you. Yes. It's, and it balances so the both of you out perfectly. I'd like to talk about writing for recreation, and it certainly helped. <clears throat> forgive me. It certainly helped me in my recovery, especially because the process is beyond therapeutic. Putting words etched into your heart from pen to paper, it just stirs something inside and it releases a chemical that that is too gratifying beyond words. Yeah, um, I love the writing process. I, I think I, before I got clean and I was just writing, you know, screenplays to try to try to make money off of them. Um, when I when I got sober. I remember someone asked me, they were like, do you think you'll ever write again? And I was like, no, that was something I did in active addiction. You know, like I brushed it off, like, like I'm Jerry Stahl or something. I was like, no. Um, but then I started, I started back writing again, just to, you know, whether it was journaling, whether it was, you know, writing out the steps, whether it was um, short stories, things like that. And then that gave way to, you know, lots of ideas and things. And, you know, I, now it's the, the beautiful part of it is just the process of it is so amazing. It's like, you'll hear a song and you'll be like, Oh, I got to write a scene about that. You know, like, or you'll hear the perfect opening tune for a movie and you'll be like, Hmm, where can I, what can I do? Can, can this present itself? And, and a lot of that has to do with, um, third step. Like a lot of it has to do with like meeting my higher power, um, because once I did that, my writing process became a lot easier. Um, I had asked a friend of mine when I started doing this screenplay, I was like, well, you know, what do I do back in my day? You had to write a query letter and, you know, and he was like, just pray about it and start writing. And I, I was like, too simple, you know, um, but I did, and it was so beautiful because it was just like everything that I asked God for, he just gave it to me. Like, it was literally like, I don't know what the title is going to be. And then it was like, poof. And then it was like, I don't know about this, poof. And it just kept, it was just gifting. It just kept gifting. And I'm like, oh, oh my God. Okay. Yeah. All right. Great. Yeah. I can do that. Oh, this is great. And then this plays off of this and this plays off of that. And I'll hear a song and I'll go, oh, you know what? that would make a great song for this character or that would make a great scene. I can write a scene to that song. Um, and then it just, the, the, yeah, it's so cool. I love it. I love, I, I do. The writing process is so amazing. I, I that there with a bunch of flashcards and line them all up. And, you know, and do you keep them in a binder? Spotify. No, I'm, I'm the worst. Like I am not an organization organized person at all. Um, so I have like my, I have my like little note cards and they're like, they have like a, 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 a like a, like a rubber band around them. Oh, yeah. Um, and then I just spread them all out and start writing and, uh, like a spider diagram. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what's funny is I just got final draft the other day and great software, you great know, software. I'm watching, I'm watching the tutorials, right. And they're like, we have a thing called a, you know, called a, a, a beat wall and you can take these, you know, you, you can take your note cards and put them on the beat wall and then you can take a song and a character and a picture. And I'm just like, <laughs> I, I can't, that's too much. I gotta watch the first, no, let's watch the how to video first. Yeah. And then we're gonna... 
put that over there, you know. But then again, Erin, um, that's the age of the amateur. Everyone is committing DIY to master new skills. And I think it's great because everyone's yes, learning yes, at, at the speed of white light. It really is. It's cool, man. I've been writing screenplays since I was 13. And, and I used 13. to write them on like just like little pieces of paper. And, and I would write them on like big yellow notepads and then take them down to Kinko's and get them bound and then give them out to all my friends and have them acted out in my backyard. And, you know, I, I, I've been doing it for so long and I love it. And then to, to finally, Oh my God. I mean, to have a, to have a, like a, a system where you just put in, you like put in the character name and then it just was like, <laughs> or you're like, Oh my God. That sense of accomplishment it's, is beyond words. I get you. So beautiful. But oh you're a multi-talent gosh. I've discovered because not only are you a well-oiled writer, but you also have a talent for singing, particularly the I genre do. of opera, which today is an acquired taste, of course. But of anyone course. at any time who has had vocal training, normally you train in the classics to expand your range. Why exactly opera? And how is it that an aria helps you keep on the straight and narrow? Honestly, it started off when I was five years old and Amadeus came out. And when Amadeus came out, I um, I would watch it as a kid and I would mimic the different singers uh, because I had a talent for being able, I was a talent for being able to do impressions at a young age and, and mimicry in general. And so how I learned how to sing was just by mimicking. And I mean, cause I'm not, I don't read, like, I don't, I don't read music. I <laughs> No idea. You can play it on a piano and I'll sing it right back to you. But like, you tell me like, here, read this, you know. So for years, I would just, that's how I learned how to sing. And my mom had gotten me singing lessons and I was doing that for the longest time. And then um, I just had gotten into, you know, Carmen was like the, the one I enjoyed the most and did it. I tried to do some Mozart, but it's like, forget it. And like, that is, that is I am, very I have a great range that is up here. I mean, as far as the, the, so you're a soprano you know, basically. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I'm not a, um, uh, I guess I would be a mezzo. Yeah. I'm uh, a mezzo. Yeah. Cause I'm not a cult, culturally. I'm not, I'm not Julie Andrews. Because Julie Andrews is a cotillier. Yeah, yes, and I'm, yes, I'm yes. A, you know, I'm a mess. In fact, it's one of my favorite lines from Victor Victoria. You know, oh, she's like, what a classic. I'm, I'm a cotillier, not a mezzo. <laughs> 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 um, so I walked into, so when I turned about 37, I, uh, I wanted to audition for Mamma Mia. And, uh, but of course I was like, yeah, but am I really good enough to audition for Mamma Mia? Like I haven't really sung in front of anybody for like 20 years. So I, I found it, um, I, I found like singing lessons and, uh, I started going and I told her why. And I said, I said, this is what I said. I said, um, so I sound like Maria Callas. I want to sound like Elaine Page. Seriously. That was my, that was my thing. At like it wasn't honest. like. And ambitious. You know, I wasn't like, I want to find my voice and I want to learn to accept myself for the wonderful singer that I am. No, it was like, I want to sound like Elaine Page. Can you make me sound like Elaine Page? And so 
and, and she worked with me um, and she, she did a lot of music therapy, which I wasn't really expecting. And, uh, and it was funny because my mom, my mom saw her picture and she goes, I know her. And I was like, Meh. and uh, it turns out they went to high school together. Really? And Small world. So, yeah, I know. I know this town. So she, so she's like, oh yeah, I know her. And then I told my, I told my teacher, and she's like, oh yeah, I remember her. Oh, you know, we were all in the vocal group together. So she, uh, so she started teaching me. And then when, when we went into lockdown and when, we, when COVID hit, um, we started doing virtual lessons. Mm -hmm. And so we do, we do lessons on Zoom now. And I had gotten away from opera. I was just kind of getting tired of it. Cause it's one of those things where when I um when I master something I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> no, sure, sure. Because it feels like a like a drab. I get yes! you. In that regard. Yes, it's like you do. I'm like, oh, I did that. What else can we do? You know. So we um we picked up Abba Gold and we started doing that. And I'm I'm planning on doing Fernando for my mom for Mother's Day. That's oh, the ultimate plan because that's her favorite Abba song. So. Um, but yeah, it, she, Francine taught me how to just, how to be okay in my own voice. She taught me how to have confidence when I sing, which I didn't have at all. Every time I would make a mistake when I was singing, I would get really mad at myself and I'd be like, that was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm a, like I'm the drill sergeant and officer and a gentleman, you know, like I'm Louis Gossett Jr. And oh, I'm just man. screaming at myself because I screwed up. Right. It's terrible. But she taught me, she's just like, you know, just, you, you know, this is how you do it. And now I'm to a point where when we sing, I can stop myself and go, okay, I don't really like the way that sounded, but I'm not necessarily sure if it's because of pronunciation. I don't think it's pitch. And it's great that I can recognize that because I wasn't able to do that before. Sure. It was like, everything sucks, you know, as opposed to just being like, no, you know what? I can't. It's that, that saying that one word is difficult to pronounce when I'm in that note. And she's like, see? You recognize that, you know, and then there's been times when we've tried songs and it's just been like, nah, it's a wash. Like money, money, money <laughs> oh, is yeah. too deep for me. Very, very. It's too, it's too low. So like we tried to do it and I was like, we're not doing this. <laughs> I think goes, it's more for alts. Sometimes that will happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, for example, I auditioned to be part of a stage company that fell flat within its first month and I tried singing uh, Disturbed's rendition of Sound of Silence. Oh. The best, the best cover there will never be after that. Yeah, it's absolutely. Agreed. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's, just a, it's just a magnificent song and I'll tell you an interesting story on that uh, in a moment. And when I auditioned for the song, I couldn't make the chorus. But interestingly enough, when we did Grease on the stage, I passed the audition and I got Grease not long afterwards. I could manage those high notes perfectly. But with that particular song, I just didn't have that range yet mm -hmm. to get there. But you have to learn your strong points and your weak points. And often it's not nice hearing it, but you can take the criticism constructively and fight or flight, you know, I'm going to work on my vocal range to ultimately master it. Or, you know what, it's not meant for me. Let's try something else. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's it, it, there's so much freedom in being able to say, like, 
yeah, I don't, I don't know about that. Like that's, I don't know if I can, I don't, I don't know if I want to go there, you know? Cause there's been songs when we've tried and I, I've just been like, there's no way I can do this. Like we did, I dreamed a dream <clears throat> and I said, I'm like, oh, that's kind of, woo, you know, like getting into that, yeah. that middle part of it or whatever. And then the first time I did it, I was terrified. Like I, like I remember I was like, okay, where am I going to breathe? Because I'm never going to be able to reach that note if I don't breathe. Right. And then now I can do it in my sleep. Oh, you know, wow. when you get to that point, I'm like, I can do it. And then I'm like, oh shit, that was me. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like what? And she's like, yep. You know, I'm like, what it's, the hell? it's a revelation unto itself about Disturbed's rendition of the sound of silence. This is going to bring you to tears. I began listening to Disturbed in high school. They were my all-time favorite band. And, of course, it made the folks' hair stand up, you know, 11, 13-year-old listening to headbangers stuff. You know, it's the devil's music. But sadly, I never shook it off and it became my career. But uh, they'd just gone on a hiatus around about 2011. And David, the lead singer, had just gotten married, moved to Austin, Texas to get away from it all. And he and his partner started to get the itch again. And they kept everyone, every single person who was involved in the album's release and recording, they forced an oath to secrecy. Now, if you listen to their discography, at the end of every album, there's always a cover of a song that influenced them. And they just... And they make it signature to to their sound, which is a lot heavy and that... And if it's your particular taste... Wonderful, great music. But for this album, they went a completely different route. Scrapped the metal idea and replaced it with a full symphony orchestra. Went to Las Vegas to record. Now, David, being classically trained, he was a Hazan, a Jewish choir boy. You know, like mm-hmm. in, in the Catholic religion, you have the choir boy. Uh, in, in, in the Jewish, in Judaism, you have what's called a Hazan. So he was a classically trained Hazan, which is operatic. And he's also hypercritical about his voice. Mike recorded that song. They recorded that song in one take. David comes out. He turns his back towards his bandmates and he says, play me the sample. They play it. And David is silent. Dead silent. He says, play it again. Mike reluctantly plays it again. Same answer. Play it again. I think this happened in a cycle of three times. And, wow. after, and after it finished for the third time and David turned around, his band members had noticed that he'd been crying. That's how pure the song was. And they never reckoned that it would be such a great hit. Even better, it's become so a cult favorite that they play it at every performance. It's become part of their, of their repertory. And out of the clear blue sky on a performance one night... David sits on a bar stool and he announces they're going to sing Sound of Silence. And he calls Miles Kennedy from Alterbridge to be his art Garfunkel. And they sang it in a duet. Oh my God. That's awesome. How's that for a a story? That's awesome. See, I'm a huge huge Simon and Garfunkel fan. It's ridiculous. Um, They rejuvenated folk music. They really? Yeah. Seriously. Because there's a lot of stuff that if you don't get introduced to it by your parents, you will not get introduced to it. Oh, yes. And so there's lots of people that probably heard the cover and then they were like, oh, like, let me go look up this singer-songwriter duo. 
<laughs> you know, I mean, it's funny because like the first time I saw The Graduate, which was like in in high school, I remember being like, I, I love Scarborough Fair. Scarborough Fair was a fantastic song, right? And you're Take watching The Graduate and I'm like, to man, Scarborough Fair. I, it's like, I really like this song. I, I, I uh, but maybe they won't play it again. Like, I'm going to rewind it, right? And then you realize <laughs> they it nine more times, times. <laughs> in, in a variety face. of ways. In fact, my favorite Simon and Garfunkel song is a song called April Come She Will. It's like an, oh, it's yes. like a one minute, 48 second song. Uh, and they play it once. <laughs> <laughs> one time. They play it one time during an amazing cinematic scene that's like that montage of them, you know, not falling in love, but like, mm. you know, all of these things that they're doing and him floating in the pool. And it's just this amazing thing. Um, but yeah, man, they, they just ran Scarborough and just, and just, I mean, they just kept doing it and doing it and doing it. I was just like, oh my God. <laughs> Something I forgot to mention with regards to my little story. Disturbed ultimately gets nominated for a Grammy for their rendition. They are nonplussed by it. <clears throat> A week later, <laughs> here the band gets an email from Paul Simon begging them if they ever play it live on stage again, will they invite him so that they can sing it as a duet? Oh, that's so cool. I think that's <sighs> the biggest compliment anyone can get. Because if you're covering a song, there's an amount of responsibility and respect that has to go into it. Like there's a South African version of Sound of Silence that was released here. <laughs> No. <laughs> it's completely off key. But oh, some, God. I, I promise you I'll send you I'll send you the link. Just listen to the first 10 seconds and then just turn it off. But this song was became a cult favorite. I can't stand to hear it. It's bastardizing. Really? Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. no, no. But while we're talking about our appreciation for music. As a disc jockey primarily, and as someone who loves music and loves to sing, it's helped me certainly to find an escape, to live in my own head most times, and to travel to that place unknown of creativity. Has opera in general done the same for you? Yeah, because there are times when I'm feeling, you know sad or or upset about something or it could be just feeling less than you know or and being able to sing is an outlet it's an emotional outlet to be able to do that and sort of inject that emotion into it because like I've cried in front of Francine before you know I've just been like you know and she's like it's just let's put it into the music you know so I've done I've done that I've I've done that just like where I'm crying and singing at the same time um and, and there's been times when I've wanted to work through something and I've said like hey can we do this song <clears throat> or hey can we do this song um because she's always told me that like there's a difference between you know like you, you kind of like you have to find the story mm-hmm. and, and as it relates to you you know, um, because there are songs that I've listened to where I'm like, yeah, I can't relate to that. Like, I can't, uh, I can't sing it because I don't relate to it, you know, but she's taught me how to kind of go in there and find my part of the story, 
you know, and, and I really, I enjoy that. My favorite, my, my, my favorite Broadway show is chess always has been since I was, I've never seen it. I'm ashamed oh to admit. Oh, well, I mean, I never saw it either because the damn thing went out in 87. So, I mean, I wasn't <laughs> old enough to be able to see it. I think they did a they, they did a PBS uh, where they dragged a bunch of people who were newer to do the stuff. But, like, the original production is, like, Murray Head and Elaine Page. Oh, and Murray Head, One Night in Bangkok. That's where, that's what, that's what's, that's from Chess. So. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that, but <laughs> now you've expanded my mind. Yeah, so that's where it comes from, and so um, I grew up singing uh, like two or three songs from Chess, and I just loved it. I was fascinated by it, and and it was just such an interesting story, and um, and the music was so beautiful, and uh, so one of the first things I did when I got my singing lessons was I brought my tattered chess book with me and I was like oh, she means. <laughs> and and now it, it's great and that would have been like my ultimate I, if I had two fantasies that will never come true and that's okay one of them was to be in the in the Broadway company of chess or the Broadway company of Tommy because well, those were the you two you never know there might be a revival somewhere along the line someday maybe um but I just I I absolutely adore both of those and they're super they're kind of obscure in comparison to say hamilton or yes. you know chicago or, <laughs> or chicago or any of those types of things like i tend to like the 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 smaller shows and then just because if the music moves me in a way and i relate to it in a way then it, it's just very special to me and mm, tommy mm. was the very first broadway show i ever saw on broadway and also the only one um they uh we had a like a trip our uh freshman year of high school because i went to an art school and we all decided we all went to to new york and we saw a matinee production of tommy and it was phenomenal I'm sure. And afterwards I bought like the little cassette, you know, and the book and the <laughs> and and went home and locked myself in my bedroom and proceeded to just sing every single song because I I I just thought, "Oh my god, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my entire life." And you know, that's that's how I think art has always been there, man. Like I since I was a child, you know, there are so I, I never understood people, and I still don't to this day, who you ask them, like who their favorite bands are or whatever. And they literally say, like, like I'm not really into music. It's like, <laughs> or whatever's on the radio. No, no. <laughs> if someone had to tell me that, I would go completely ape on them. Like, sure, there are certain groups of people who rather listen to music for ambience, but. Music is the university of life, Erin. And I think yes. that's that's why any <clears throat> person who has a pulse, who has a CD or a vinyl collection, it it speaks to them. In And I'm not just saying to like one specific genre. I'm going across the board. Music is the rhythm of life. It's the university of life. It has the ability to liven the mood, depress in the mood. Shift your thinking. The lyrics make you think. The tone might shift your your uh, train of thought in a completely different direction. And people who say that they 
just listen to music. They'll just listen to it for ambience. They would rather be told a story. So they would rather listen to an audiobook. Let's give them that amount of grace. <laughs> but now let's focus on another love that you and I share, and that's for, for classic slasher films. I must be yes! honest. Oh my god! I must be very honest with you. I don't see good horror films anymore. Everything is just a whole bunch no. of it's just a whole bunch of gore and exploitation. I miss no. I miss guys like Wes Craven, Mick Garris, Joe Dante, um, uh, 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 Clive Barker. I just spoke oh, yesterday. I spoke yesterday when uh, uh, for for the audience who don't know, I played a song yesterday on my radio show Tempo Tavern Extra on Bulldogs Radio, and I mentioned. I played Mudvayne's Forget to Remember from their 2005 album called Lost and Found, and I played that uh, bit in Saw 2 where the g- gentleman is caught in that uh, Venus flytrap mask that eventually closes, filled with the nails. And uh, <laughs> there's a rare distinction in that, in that franchise because there's only three actors who've played the same signature character more than eight times. Tobin Bell, who, who was Jigsaw, mm-hmm. Doug Bradley, who played Pinhead, and the most famous of all, Robert England as Freddy Krueger. Uh, yes, but boy. those films weren't meant to—they sh- were meant to shock. They weren't meant to, you know, scar you in comparison to the. If you want to be scarred, turn on the news. Come on, but yes. if you look at horror films today, it doesn't have that same punch. It's just a whole bunch of exploitation. It's just. It's gore for the sake of gore. And it's not even real gore. It's CGI gore. And you can see it. And you can see it. (laughs) Like you can differentiate in two seconds flat. I will watch I will watch old horror films with my mother, and my mother will say things like she'll be like, see that? Practical effects. (laughs) That's that's the way it's supposed to be. One time she was, we were watching something and she said, I swear to God, I don't know how many vodka she'd had, but she said, (laughs) well, I'm so glad, I'm so glad this movie isn't CSI. And without missing a beat, my, my boyfriend goes, yeah, that, that, uh, that redhead fucks up everything. (laughs) 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 She's like, well, said. No, um, no. I I grew up with uh, I I mean I did I, I grew up with Nightmare on Elm Street, My Bloody Valentine, Black Christmas. Um, that remake all, of all those... My Bloody Valentine was shit. Oh God! And then they changed the ending. What is that even about? Um, I mean, and it's so unfair makes... to Jensen Ackles because he gives a great I performance know. in it. And he's a great actor. He, he is. is. He's a great actor. It's Very just unfortunate versatile. that. I mean, it's like. Scream was a double-edged sword because we were in a horror wasteland during that time period where horror movies were just garbage. Like there was nothing being released. You know, they'd shut down all the franchises. You know, nothing was really being released that was any good. So Mm. all of a sudden, Kevin Williamson decides to watch a documentary about the Gainesville murders. You know, (laughs) shout out to Florida. And... I know. Stay classy, home state. And he gets this idea in his head, like, holy shit, like, what if, you know, like, what if this happened? And what if this happened? So he starts writing Scream. And Scream comes out and, you know, it rejuvenates, 
the horror genre. It makes yeah. people start searching for these older films and these, but, but here's what happened is that what Hollywood loves to do is just run everything into the ground. Sadly. So, you know, it's not just scream. It's like, I know what you did last summer, urban legends, you know, and then all of a sudden it's just, we've got all these like shitty horror films with the cast of Dawson's Creek. And yeah, it's like, sadly. oh man, you know, so the, uh, the only horror film that I've seen in the past 20 years, let's see, that I actually absolutely adore and will watch over and over and over again and tell all my friends about is Aching Session 9. Session 9 with um, David Caruso. With David Caruso. See? Full circle. What, um, what we, a underrated movie. And there's a CSI connection there because not only is, is David Caruso in it, but also Paul Gilfoyle who went on to play Jim Brass yeah. in CSI Las Vegas. He's so great. I love it. I just, I the, like the first time you watch the movie, you're kind of like, hmm, this is interesting. And then once you figure out what's going on, and then you watch it a second time. And when you watch it a second time, you're in a completely different perspective because now oh, yeah. you know what happened. So it's even more disgusting and frightening. Very. And then you watch it a third time and you start picking out different things. And I actually used with my sponsees, um, there's a there's a line in the movie, which is, um, you know, he says, where do you live? And he says, I live in the weak and the wounded. Wow. And I believe yeah. that addiction and addictive behaviors and those types of things is in the weak and the wounded. Absolutely. So, couldn't have said it when i don't feel well when i'm you know when when something has happened that has compromised that there's more of a chance of me to be um susceptible mm. to that kind mm. of thing so mm. yeah so yeah i i uh, i use that and i use that with a, with someone and she's like oh my god that movie was so scary <laughs> <laughs> um, now you can enjoy it on a different level um but not only was i raised with horror films but i was raised with a brother who did practical effects and so really in our backyard he learned like he would watch you know well not watch but he would read he would read like tom savini books and and Fangoria. oh there's a name tom savini i know savini and he would look at it and go, okay, that's how you do this. And that's how you do that. So as a kid, when we would watch horror movies, I was not scared because my brother would be like, okay, this is how they did that. Mm-hmm. Like this ax to the head is this, and this is this, and this is this, and this is plaster of Paris. And this is, uh, you know, Cairo syrup. And Absolutely. so I grew up seeing those types of things. And so it wasn't, it was not scary to me to this day. I, I mean, the other Third night, I was like, man, I really need something to go to sleep to. And I was like, ah, Friday 13th part two. Okay. But think about <laughs> it this way. <laughs> but think about it this way. When Nightmare on Elm Street was all the rage, it gave rise to a lot of people who became prominent in the film industry, namely Stephen Hopkins, who went on to direct mm-hmm. 24, the t- television series with Kiefer Sutherland. He did a horror entry himself, uh, which is one of my favorites, called Predator. Uh, the second- Predator! The Second Predator with Danny Glover and as well as Rennie Harlan who went on to direct action films for a while and there's a film if you haven't seen it please do yourself a favor it's an unco- it's not marketed as a horror film but it is scary as can be it's called Mindhunters oh 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 wait 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 okay is this the one I think I I totally seen this like several times is this the one where there's it's like a group of people 
and um, one of them is one of them is a serial killer, or or they're they're hunting like a killer. And it's a it bunch of FBI like, profilers who go yes, out to an yes. island, starring and Bell Kilmer John, and Johnny Lee Miller. Yeah, okay, that's yeah, exactly yeah. that's exactly <laughs> the one. I was so surprised that Rennie made a thrill fest out of that film, and it bashed at the box office. I couldn't believe mm. it. It's one of the best horror films I've ever seen. That's interesting. Yeah, you know what? I have heard that 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 really got raked over the coals. And, and it's same thing with Event career. Horizon. Same thing. Oh yeah. People yes. are like, oh, Event Horizon. I'm like, dude, Event Horizon was like scarred for life very type movie for me and it was marketed <laughs> as a sci-fi sci picture sci-fi movie that's what i thought when someone introduced me to it i was like you mean the sci-fi movie with Lawrence fishburne and they're like <laughs> just wait yeah just wait. and then i watch it i'm like oh hellraiser in space okay. <laughs> now i got it now it's like because sam neill is so good he's an just, underrated he's actor good in everything an underrated he's everything. He can do um, television, yeah, he can do film, he can do theater. He's such a versatile actor. And, and now he uh, raises sheep and makes wine. Well, so. you know what? You have to do what your what your heart contends. Hey, man, if it makes you happy. Absolutely. Aaron, this has been an absolute blast. I never figured that this conversation would be so varied. You're a wonderful person, and Yay. I think I speak for many people who hear a story where tremendously proud of you one final question you're young apart and you're literally like you're living every day as if as if it's the first day for the rest of your life if you could go back in time and look at a younger Aaron Dawn what would be the first words that you'd say it's gonna be okay and I would say your worth is not determined by a man. That's it. And that and that man could be your dad or the men you date or the man you're going to marry or anyone after that. But your worth is not determined by that. And can we give uh, your social media handle for people who are hearing about you just now? Sure, sure. I'm on Instagram under Aaron Dawn uh, and you can find me there i do not do facebook or twitter or any of those types of things but i i'm definitely on instagram and you can definitely friend me and i'll friend you right back and do check it out because that's a library that's not just a social media handle that's a library she puts on a bit of everything erin thank you so much and nothing but the best going for the future thank you thank you for this opportunity <laughs>
That was having a cuppa for this week. We hope you enjoyed this leg of the journey. Until the next time we meet, tell your friends and write us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts.